You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to this week's edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. And as usual, kicking off with a shout out to all our new listeners. And this week we have new listeners in London, Twickenham, Guildford, Southampton, Portsmouth, Coventry, Reading, Chester, Brighton, Cork in the Irish Republic, Dublin in the Irish Republic, Asturias in Spain, Hess in Germany, Brussels in Belgium, Paris in France, Gelderland in the Netherlands, Zurich in Switzerland, Freiburg in Switzerland, Stockholm in Sweden, Hordaland in Norway, Helsinki in Finland, Perth in Australia, Christchurch in New Zealand, and Bloomington, Indiana in the USA. So, as you can probably tell, now we've got listeners every week, new listeners every week, right across the globe, which is great news, and a uh, big welcome to all of you. And of course, a big thank you to everyone who's listening to this podcast for giving up 30 minutes of your day to catch up on the latest news in the world of GDPR. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Okay, so coming up in this week's packed episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have an update on the appeal court decision in the case of Morrison's payroll data breach. We have some details on a very major data breach from Cathay Pacific. We have an update on the British Airways data breach and that the number of people affected by that breach is now thought to have increased by some 185,000 people. We have an update on Data Protection World Forum event in London, taking part in uh, Excel in London in November. We have an update on the Facebook uh, data breach connected with Cambridge Analytica and that the ICO has now implemented the maximum possible fine against Facebook. And then we have an information article to update you a bit and give you some ideas of what to look out for to try and protect yourself against either a phishing attack or a spear phishing attack. So, as normal, lots in this episode of the GPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. We begin this week with an update on the data breach of employee data by a disgruntled ex-employee at Morrison's. You may remember that we covered this in the last few weeks on the podcast and uh, the original ruling in the High Court was that Morrison's were indeed liable to pay compensation to the some 5,000 staff who joined together to bring a class action against Morrison's for damage that they'd suffered by having their payroll data leaked into the public domain. Morrison's this week took the case to the Court of Appeal and in a decision which I think has sent some shockwaves through the data protection community, the Court of Appeal upheld the original ruling by the High Court. And so the Court of Appeal has now agreed that uh, Morrison should pay compensation 
to the employees affected, even though the ex-employee who released the data has himself been now convicted of a criminal offence of misusing the data. But the liability falls back on the employer. And so Morrison's now find themselves potentially with quite a high bill. It's not yet been decided what the bill will be because uh, lawyers have yet to sit down and work out what the actual damages to the employees are. It's recognised that by Morrison's acting as quickly as they did, that there's probably no direct financial damage to any of the employees, but doubtless the employees will seek to claim under distress for the emotional distress that's been caused to them by knowing that their payroll data has been leaked to the big wide world. Um, I think it's a really interesting case because, of course, it does set a precedent. And it does mean that employers need to be very, very careful about the employees that they have handling personal data. Obviously, you need to make sure that those employees have themselves signed an employee privacy policy. And uh, if you need help with that, then please do get in touch with us directly at podcasts at insurety.co.uk. That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y dot co.uk. And we can, of course, help you with getting your paperwork in order to make sure that you minimise your risk of this happening to you. But it is also perhaps something worth checking with your corporate insurers that your insurance does cover you for this scenario where a disgruntled ex-employee has taken it upon themselves to take data from your system and then release it into the outside world. Everyone, I think, within the data protection community was expecting the Court of Appeal to overrule the uh, High Court, but they didn't. They decided the High Court was quite right. Morrison's, from their part, have now said that they intend to take the the case to the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, for a final decision. And we await when that will happen. Given the current timetable of the Supreme Court, I'd be very surprised personally if that happens this side of Christmas. But we shall see. They might manage to get an emergency application and get it through quicker. It's interesting, though, that the uh, data breach was detected by someone within the company and action taken fairly quickly and indeed the person who committed the uh, crime themselves, uh, Mr Skelton, a senior internal auditor at Morrison's Bradford headquarters, has subsequently been jailed for eight years after being found guilty of fraud securing unauthorised access to computer material and disclosing personal data. But for the company, the news is that they, as I say, will need to pay damages to each of these 5,000 employees and doubtless the other employees whose data was leaked who didn't form part of this class action will probably now seek to bring a class action of their own. I think it's an interesting case as well because it does make you perhaps as an employer, more aware of the security implications of your payroll data. And indeed, I've heard of several companies now who are looking to use an external payroll bureau who hadn't looked to do so in the past 
solely to try and shift that responsibility so that the responsibility if there is a data breach passes to the payroll bureau rather than the employer themselves. Now, given GDPR's way of sharing data, of controlling shared data and data processing agreements and data processing agreements between data controllers and data processors, we'll see how successful they are in that. Again, if data processing agreements is an area where you could need some help, then please do reach out to us and we will do our best to help you. Um, so we wait and see what happens. A Morrison spokesperson said Morrison's worked to get the data taken down quickly, provide protection for those colleagues and reassure them that they would not be financially disadvantaged. In fact, we are not aware that anyone suffered any direct financial loss. We believe we should not be held responsible, so that's why we will now appeal to the Supreme Court. So we wait and see. And uh, I will, of course, keep you updated on this as soon as we next have an update from Morrison's or indeed from the Supreme Court on a date for the case to be heard. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Wednesday saw Cathay Pacific, the Hong Kong-based airline, confessed that it was aware of a data breach which had potentially exposed the data of some 9.4 million passengers. Incredibly large data breach. The other interesting thing with this breach from Cathay Pacific was that because uh, they fall under Hong Kong data protection rules rather than GDPR, unless of course any of the people affected are EU or UK citizens, Cathay Pacific have been very lax in their reporting of this data breach because whilst they uh, released it to the press on Wednesday this week, the breach itself had been detected in March and confirmed in early May. And I just find it absolutely staggering that they've effectively sat on this information for six months or more before releasing it to the public and I, I, I really don't understand the logic of them doing that because it's just made a bad situation even worse for them I think. Um, the airline announced the news on its website and said we are aware that attempted phishing is taking place and would like to remind people that emails related to this data security event will only be sent from info security at cathaypacific.com The danger is, is that because of the data that's been stolen, that although there's no evidence that current credit card details have been stolen, as far as Cathay Pacific are willing to reveal, what is known is that 403 expired credit card numbers were taken and 27 credit card numbers but with no card verification number i.e. the number from the back of the card along with about 860,000 passport numbers and 240,000 Hong Kong ID card numbers. Now the danger is, is that with this information uh, the people who took this data or hacked this data may now be able to carry out what's called a spear phishing exercise. 
Um, just to explain here, fishing is not about somebody going out with a rod and catching a fish. It's fishing where an organisation will pretend to be another organisation. So in this case, the hackers would pretend to be Cathay Pacific, or perhaps they would pretend to be your bank or your passport office. And they will ask you for information. Fishing by itself is bad enough, but spear phishing is where, based on the information that they've stolen, they're able to really personalise the message that they send to you to request more information from you. And so if you receive an email from someone pretending to be your bank and it's obviously wrong or there's no detail in it that makes you think it's actually personalised to you. These days, I'd like to think that most people are fairly awake enough to recognise that as a phishing attack and not submit the details. However, if you got that same email, but it actually included things like saying, you know, we recognise for your security, we've given the final four digits or final eight digits of your passport number, which are da 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 and you go and check your passport number and you find that those numbers are correct, then of course you're far more likely to believe that that email is genuine, even though in fact that email is just a sophisticated way of phishing and getting more information from you. Perhaps they'll try and get the number from the back of your card or the expiry date or your address or some other information. And so anyone who's dealt with Cathay Pacific over the last six months probably nine months, be extremely careful of any emails you may receive that claim to either be from Cathay Pacific or from someone else like your bank or a government agency. If you don't recognise the details and there's no way on the email of verifying the details, then just delete the email and do not provide the information that the email is asking for. I really can't stress that strongly enough because fishing and sophisticated fishing like this spear fishing is a way of extracting hundreds if not thousands of pounds from your account so please don't let it happen but i think as well it's interesting because it shows how with gdpr of course um cafe pacific within the eu would have only had 72 hours after discovering this breach to have gone public with it rather than six months that they have in this case. And so there are now calls on the Hong Kong authorities to bring forward as quickly as they can either GDPR per se, or certainly a GDPR strength equivalent to their data processing. So that should this happen again, then at least the people who are affected by it would know much sooner than six months later that a breach had taken place. And indeed, obviously, then as well, have in place a mechanism for set compensation for those carriers, those people who were flying with Cathay uh, Pacific to get their compensation. Now, the other interesting thing here is that in response to this data breach, um, Cathay Pacific are now offering all their passengers a 12-month free data breach surveillance service. But 
to sign up to that service, you have to reveal a lot more personal information to the provider of the service, and hence to Cathay Pacific. And I don't know about you, but my mindset would say once bitten, twice shy. And I don't think that I'd want to sign up to a data breach surveillance service for an organisation which, even though it had its own surveillance, failed to actually go public on a data breach for six months after the data breach occurred. It's up to each person, of course, to make their own individual judgment, but I've, there you go, I've just given my, my opinion on this. There are plenty of providers of other anti-phishing software and I recommend that you, you look some up, just do a Google for anti-phishing. And uh, it's P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, by the way, and not F-I-S-H-I-N-G. So it's P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. Look at the providers and find something that works for you. But personally, I would not sign up to the data breach surveillance service being offered by Cathay Pacific. No doubt there will be updates to this story in the weeks and months ahead. And we will, of course, keep you updated via the weekly episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. Just a reminder that as well as the podcast, we now have our own Facebook group. Please do pop along and see us there at https colon slash slash www.facebook.com slash groups slash GDPR Weekly Show. That's always one word, GDPR Weekly Show. And... uh, do please come and join the group and follow the discussions that are going on. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The other news concerning airlines and data breaches this week was the update from British Airways on their data breach, which they suffered a little while ago. Again, regular listeners to the podcast will know that we've been covering this a few times in the last few weeks. Uh, But this week, the airline had to announce that the number of passengers affected by the breach had gone up. Uh, Its initial thought was that some 380,000 passengers had been affected. They now have upped that to say that they now believe 565,000. So just over half a million customers have been affected and that customers' payment card information and customers' personal details had been compromised as part of the breach. In a statement, the company said around 77,000 of these customers who hadn't previously been notified had potentially had their name, billing address, card number, expiry date and security code compromised. And it's very important, of course, with the security code compromised, that means that a person having this data in their hands now has everything they need to make transactions on the internet pretending to be the cardholder and as far as the cardholder's bank is concerned everything would appear to be in order and so they would likely proceed with the purchase and so it's very important that if you have been contacted by British Airways or Indeed, if you've made a booking with British Airways at any time between April the 21st and July the 28th, 2018, and it was a reward booking and you used the payment card, you should speak to your bank about renewing your payment card and getting a new card with a new CVV number, a new number on the back, um, so that 
it yields the stolen data useless. So if you just repeat that, if you made a booking with British Airways between April the 21st and July the 28th this year and used the payment card, then do contact your bank for further advice as to what you should do regarding requesting a new card. The airline also revealed that there were 108,000 people whose details were potentially stolen, but crucially, not the all-important CVV number, not the number from the battery card. And so that's less of a worry, because although um, someone may try and guess the three digits of the battery card, obviously there's only a 1 in 1,000 chance of getting that right. And so, it, again, it's an example where um, airlines are vulnerable solely because of the amount of data that they hold and the volume of data they hold and the type of data they hold. You know, they, they, they need, by necessity, to hold your passport number, your name and address, and your payment details. And, of course, those are all very attractive data fields for those with ill intent to take advantage of. But it is worth saying that initially British Airways claimed to breach only affected bookings from August the 21st at 22.58 BST to September the 5th at 21.45 BST. But as they're now saying it's any time between April the 21st and July the 28th. So we've gone from a period of three weeks to a period of some 12 to 15 weeks. So obviously, potentially, a great deal more people who, who may have been affected. Now, again, we're expecting this British Airways data breach case to run and run, and so we will continue to keep you up to the date with any developments in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. An event for your diaries uh, on the 20th and 21st of November 2018 at the XL Conference Centre in London uh, is the Data Protection World Forum. Uh, it's a conference spread over two days. There are a number of GDPR-related topics coming up at the conference, including uh, GDPR, the future of marketing and advertising, a GDPR health check, GDPR and HR, how to achieve ongoing compliance, and of course GDPR and HR is something that we've been talking about in this episode of the podcast, and also business development in a post-GDPR world, and I think that's something as well which will be of interest to lots of people of just how does GDPR impact upon business development and how do we make sure that business continues to develop for everyone, even accepting the privacy constraints that GDPR places on us. So it's promising to be a really good conference and expo. Excel, if you don't know it, is very easy to get to. It's out in Docklands, just to the east of London. Um, it's by the Jubilee Line for underground. Um, it's also very close to London City Airport, so for visitors from overseas it's very easy to arrive there and it also has other good transport links. 
Uh, it's not great though to drive to, it has to be said, so it's a good case to use public transport, uh, most definitely if you can, because it makes your journey there much, much simpler. I'm going to be there on both days. If you'd like to meet up with me during the course of the Protection World, Data Protection World Forum, then of course I'd be delighted to meet with you. Please just drop me an email to podcasts at insurity.co.uk. Uh, with a note of which date, the 20th or the 21st, works best for you. And uh, we can arrange to meet at the conference. Um, I'll be talking some more about the conference in uh, a future episode of the podcast between now and November. And uh, indeed, hopefully we'll be getting to interview one of the organisers and uh, have that discussion. But just a note for your diary, so if you haven't got it in there already, please pencil in the dates, 20th and 21st November at XL in London. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The other data breach update to bring you this week is the ruling by the ICO to award the maximum fine allowed under the old Data Protection Act, Data Protection Act 1998, against Facebook for its data breach with Cambridge Analytica. As you'll be aware, we've been covering this right since the first episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And we're now at the stage where the ICO has made its judgment. And as I say, it's fined Facebook half a million pounds, which is the maximum allowed under the old legislation. And Facebook, for its part, Whilst it said it does not agree with the decision, it's not going to appeal, and so has agreed to pay the £500,000 legal penalty to the ICO. Although we need to put this into some sort of context with Facebook. Half a million pounds represents 17 minutes of their worldwide net profit. So in less than the time that it's taken you, to listen to this full episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, Facebook have earned enough profit to pay off that half million pounds fine, which perhaps illustrates why GDPR was necessary and why the increased fine structure within GDPR was necessary, because if that had been in place, then Facebook would have been looking at a much, much higher fine than that. But, it's good to see the ICO at least deciding to apply the maximum possible penalty. Uh, a spokesman for the ICO said that Facebook failed to keep the personal information secure because it failed to make suitable checks on third-party apps and developers using its platform. These failures meant that one developer, Dr. Alexander Kogan and his company GSR, harvested the Facebook data of up to 87 million people worldwide without their knowledge. Data harvested by GSR would later be passed to SCL Elections Limited, the company behind Cambridge Analytica. The Facebook companies thereby acted in breach of Section 4.4 of the Data Protection Act, which at all material time required data controllers to comply with the data protection principles in relation to all personal data in respect of which they were the data controller. But for the statutory limitation on the amount of monetary penalty, it would have been reasonable and proportionate to impose a higher penalty, the ICO said. 
Elizabeth Denham, the Information Commissioner, said Facebook failed to sufficiently protect the privacy of its users before, during and after the unlawful processing of this data. A company of its size and expertise should have known better and it should have done better. One of our main motivations for taking enforcement action is to drive meaningful change in how organisations handle people's personal data. It should be remembered, of course, that the ICO has a particular bee in its bonnet about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, as well as the use of personal data in political advertising campaigns more generally. And for those of you who uh, have listened to the podcast from day one, will remember that the ICO succeeded in getting a court order to uh, raid the offices of SCL Elections or Cambridge Analytica. A Canadian firm alleged by the ICO to be linked to Cambridge Analytica, Aggregate Data Services IQ Limited, is appealing in the first tier tribunal against the civil enforcement and notices issued by the ICO. The company said it is not linked to Cambridge Analytica scandal and was merely a software developer for SCL elections. That appeal case, and that's separate to this fine against Facebook, but that appeal case will be held in the near future. And of course, as soon as we have an update for that, then I will bring that to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The other data breach update to bring you this week is the ruling by the ICO to award the maximum fine allowed under the old Data Protection Act, Data Protection Act 1998, against Facebook for its data breach with Cambridge Analytica. As you'll be aware, we've been covering this right since the first episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And we're now at the stage where the ICO has made its judgment. And as I say, it's fined Facebook half a million pounds, which is the maximum allowed under the old legislation. And Facebook, for its part, whilst it says it does not agree with the decision, is not going to appeal. And so has agreed to pay the £500,000 legal penalty to the ICO. Although we need to put this into some sort of context with Facebook. Half a million pounds represents 17 minutes of their worldwide net profit. So in less than the time that it's taken you to listen to this full episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, Facebook have earned enough profit to pay off that half a million pounds fine, which perhaps illustrates why GDPR was necessary and why the increased fine structure within GDPR was necessary, because if that had been in place, then Facebook would have been looking at a much, much higher fine than that. But it's good to see the ICO at least deciding to apply the maximum possible penalty. Uh, A spokesman for the ICO said that Facebook failed to keep the personal information secure because it failed to make suitable checks on third-party apps and developers using its platform. These failings meant that one developer, Dr. Alexander Kogan, and his company, GSR, 
harvested the Facebook data of up to 87 million people worldwide without their knowledge. Data harvested by GSR would later be passed to SCL Elections Limited, the company behind Cambridge Analytica. The Facebook companies thereby acted in breach of Section 4.4 of the Data Protection Act, which all material time required data controllers to comply with the data protection principles in relation to all personal data in respect of which they were the data controller. But for the statutory limitation on the amount of monetary penalty, it would have been reasonable and proportionate to impose a higher penalty, the ICO said. Elizabeth Denham, the Information Commissioner, said Facebook failed to sufficiently protect the privacy of its users before, during and after the unlawful processing of this data. A company of its size and expertise should have known better and it should have done better. One of our main motivations for taking enforcement action is to drive meaningful change in how organisations handle people's personal data. It should be remembered, of course, that the ICO has a particular bee in its bonnet about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, as well as the use of personal data in political advertising campaigns more generally. And for those of you who uh, have listened to the podcast from day one, will remember that the ICO succeeded in getting a court order to uh, raid the offices of SCL Elections or Cambridge Analytica. A Canadian firm alleged by the ICO to be linked to Cambridge Analytica, Aggregate Data Services IQ Limited, is appealing in the first tier tribunal against the civil enforcement and notices issued by the ICO. The company said it is not linked to Cambridge Analytica scandal and was merely a software developer for SCL elections. That appeal case, and that's separate to this fine against Facebook, but that appeal case will be held in the near future. And of course, as soon as we have an update for that, then I will bring that to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We talked earlier in this episode of the GDPR Weekly Show about phishing and spear phishing. And what has been noticed since GDPR came into being, and probably just because more data breaches are now being reported to the ICO, and therefore there's more data to base observations on, is there does seem to be an explosion in the number of phishing sites. Um, More than 6,400 SSL certificates have been issued for lookalike domains, which is 168% greater than the number of certificates for valid UK shopping domains. A survey by security firm Vanafi has revealed. The problem is, of course, is that this puts online shoppers at risk of unwittingly handing over their username, their password, even their credit card details, to imposters who are pretending to be original retailers. And I can't emphasize enough, I know I put this earlier, but I really can't emphasize enough, if you're uncertain about a request for information, from a retailer or a bank or a government department that you've received via email, 
then do do everything you can to check out the authenticity of that email before you submit any information and if you can't satisfy yourself as to the authenticity if you've got any doubt at all then contact the organization and ask them if there's another way of providing information but don't use the telephone number that may be provided in the email itself because that may go straight through to the imposters the scammers um, look up in the phone book or look up in google yourself a number for the retailer or the bank or the credit card company who exclaims the emails from and contact them and just verify that it is a genuine email before you submit the information because it's really quite scary the, the rate at which this is now happening and major retailers of course particularly in the lead up to Christmas present larger targets for cyber criminals and the Drosen lookalike domains appearing to be connected to the uh, uh, original retailer is really quite frightening. They found that 84% of the lookalike domains studied and 81% of those studied in the UK used free certificates from organisations such as Let's Encrypt. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who uses Let's Encrypt is, is a danger. We use Let's Encrypt on some of our own websites. Indeed, it's a good way of obtaining a SSL certificate when the risk to data is relatively low and very little personal data is held. But we certainly wouldn't use Let's Encrypt on any site where we were collecting payment data. We would go for a full SSL certificate. And so it's perhaps worth checking on your own site if you're a retailer, you're, you're, you're a service provider and you're collecting payments online, just double check where, where your SSL certificate comes from. Because domain spoofing has always been a cornerstone technique of these phishing attackers and they just know how to make things very much look like they've come from you. And, you know, they come from a genuine organisation when in fact they're just crooks there's no other word for it um an example is that there's a site called newegg and cyber attackers recently set up a lookalike domain for newegg and bear in mind that this website newegg gets 50 million visitors a month so you can imagine the potential there for uh those after ill-gotten gains to increase their ill-gotten gains and According to this research by Bernafi, every online retailer they contacted was being targeted. And of course, with, as I said earlier, with Christmas approaching, the online shopping going up and up and up, the danger of suddenly giving your information to somebody who's fishing is much higher. Now, one of the things that you can do to check if you've been fished or if you're unsure whether a page is real is to report it to Google's self-browsing port safe browsing portal and you can find that at https colon slash slash safe browsing that's all one word s-a-f-e-b-r-o-w-s-i-n-g dot google dot com you go there you put in your url you confirm that you're not a robot and it will check for you whether the URA you've entered is genuine or potentially fraudulent.
and it also gives you a way of any that you've spotted you are obviously fraudulent of reporting those to Google so that Google can add them to the industry database. So just do be careful. As I say, if you receive an email you're not expecting, and it's requesting information you wouldn't normally expect an email to ask, then do double check with the genuine organisation that that email is genuine before you create or complete the information that's being requested. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember, keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.